0: Welcome to To Your Bible, custom-designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we got Isaiah and Revelation to work through this week, and so we pick up uh, and finish up uh, in the book of Isaiah, finally. Uh, And where we pick up is um, really about... um, even though there's so much teaching on hope in this book and so much teaching about the future, there's, there's still speckles of warnings throughout that yes, God's gracious, but he also still desires his people to live righteously and, um, fascinating kind of function as a, as a sort of a background theme through this chapter, that uh, the people are trying to be pious, but God desires more than that—that that they take care of the oppressed, that they show generosity, that they're fruitful—and and what matters is not just simply religious practice, but a life of obedience that cares for people, especially those on the margins. And so, um, there's there's sort of this promise that God circle back, circles back on from. From early in the book, uh, where God says, "Look, I'm coming and I'm going to destroy your walls," and now He's God saying, "Look, we're going to rebuild the walls, and and I'm going to rebuild the walls. And remember where you've been. Remember about disobedience caused. But let's let's restore. Restoration's coming. Uh, and once again, we get to focus on the Sabbath as well.
1: We see a reiteration that God is not interested in empty rituals, but He desires faithfulness from the heart. He always looks at the heart, and our faithfulness is known through our actions. And um, you know, consider the conditions of our heart and all of this as we live out the heart of faith, which is displayed in humility and advocating and caring for the oppressed God will answer our prayers and cries to be near to him. God's presence can be found when we conform to his ways. And that is our true delight.
0: Yeah. And Isaiah speaks about sort of the nature of sin that it sort of begats more sins. Like, the, 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 the hatching of snakes and eggs, or the way, the way webs entangle us. And um, it ultimately leads to this picture of wandering sort of in the darkness and, and begging for light, but stumbling through it. And, the, and that um, ultimately, the, the picture of house and works is that we can't find salvation. And that, that because sin's become so great, we just can't ever find our own version of salvation.
1: Yeah. And this is, you know, this talks a lot about evil and oppression here. And a warning to us is that apathy about justice is usually a sign of deeper heart problems.
0: Um, and, and so God answers that uh, of, of, yes, you can't solve your sin problem, but, but I will. And, and I can. Um, and that God will dress in righteousness and vengeance. And um, there's a sense of judgment and restoration in those things. And, and those who repent will be forgiven. And sort of um, this, this future promise, once again, he will put his spirit into the mouths of his people.
1: And we're given a messianic promise here. There is no justice and there's no truth uh, in the world. And those who walk by truth are considered to be prey. So God himself will bring salvation from his own arm. And this is Christ who was full of grace and truth and became a prey of the enemy, but redeemed us in the midst of it.
0: And so that, that hope is there, that as much as darkness is sort of all over, God's light will rise amongst uh, the people of Israel, and God will remind them, um, hey, look, my, my wrath was temporary for you guys, but <clears throat> I'm coming a time where I'm going to raise you up. The nations are going to take notice, and there's uh, very much this very future orientation to some of the language here where um, th- there'll be a total and complete peace, a restoration of all things will take place, um, language that ultimately gets reiterated in Revelation, where like the sun and the moon are no longer needed things like that
1: this passage is such a gift and there are other passages like it too or such an encouragement as we live as exiles in a world that is ruled by wickedness and evil we get a glimpse here of what our eternal kingdom and inheritance will be it'll be full of goodness and peace and righteousness and god's rule and glory will be so bright that it's going to illuminate our skies instead of the sun and the moon and this gives us strength to persevere because we know how good our future will be
0: yeah, and then Isaiah 61, which we pick up on plenty in the New Testament. Certainly in Luke, Jesus literally reads this passage out loud, uh, and then everybody is not happy with him. Uh, Jesus quotes <clears throat> or refers to this, I think, in some of the parables, um, and this idea that there's this year, year of jubilee that's supposed to come for God's people, and um, ultimately it's supposed to happen every 49 years, and it hasn't been happening, and Jesus is sort of ushering in, hold on, um, uh, the, um, he she, he is coming to do this great reset of the people in in a way that um, is bringing about what God originally has designed things to be. And and God loves righteousness and establishes this permanent covenant with his people forever. And So Jesus saying all these things is so uh, integral uh, when he picks up on Isaiah 61.
1: And this chapter ends with the imagery of being clothed in salvation and righteousness. And it's such a good connection to the theme of clothing that we see through all of scripture from God, clothing Adam and Eve and animal skins in Genesis three to promises of being clothed in righteousness. We are reminded that all of our salvation and covering comes from God and is not because of our mirror, but because of God's mercy and loving kindness.
0: And so there's a significant change coming and uh, to the, this- to the state that even uh, Israel will have a new name, which gets it to one of the letters from uh, Revelation. But as though God were sort of marrying his people, he's going to give them their new name as as their husband and them as his bride. And there's going to be people that remind God of these promises and that the people should prepare the way for this great movement of God.
1: In this section, we get this image of a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride, and it's a comparison to God rejoicing over his bride, which is his church. It is a lot to take in to think of God loving as much as he does when he knows all we've done. But this takes us back to the previous passage. We are clothed in salvation and righteousness because of Christ, so God's heart can be filled with eager longing and love and commitment to us. Take a moment and just sit in this love and longing God has over his church and over his people, even if it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, acknowledge your shame and his love, it's worth it to sit in because so much of what we do flows out of understanding God's love for us.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and then we get a little bit of a feels like departure, but it's reminding us sort of the power of God, that God's returning from the direction of Edom uh, and he's coming back to the land and part of his robe is stained with the blood, the destruction of Edomites just to remind the people of like God. God's will enact justice and the edomites were some of the worst in this process Mm
1: -hmm. i think this is continuing to follow the theme of salvation that we're reading about but we see salvation in the form of warfare and battle all the way to death
0: and a reminder of the past that god has done this work in the past through moses he has delivered his people before even in their rebellion and god uh, brought them back and the same is true now
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so we see it from moses even to now
0: and, um, and there's still, though, a, a longing, uh, the sort of prayer for mercy from, uh, God's people that, yes, like God is Israel's father, but they still fail to know him. And without God's presence, they, they know that they've been decimated in the past. And so they ask, like, God, please don't take your presence away. Please return to us. Um, but, but recognizing that he's still the, the potter and they're still the clay. And there's sort of this, this acknowledgement of that analogy again, too
1: yeah isaiah cries out that god would intervene and isaiah acknowledges israel's sin but asks the father to step in and i think these prayers i mean note how they are not just for israel but also for god's adversaries isaiah prays that all would see and know the glory of god so how can you include things like that in your prayers so that they're looking both inward to yourself but also outward toward the world and the people around you
0: uh, but god ultimately responds to the prayers here by saying look I, I i have not been absent and i've been here and i've been willing all this time to to forgive you if you would repent i've been gracious but but you didn't and as a result i had to deal with sin and some of you were bad grapes and some of you were good grapes so i, I did destroy all of you but um he he speaks once again that that he will eventually restore this throne in jacob um, but if they're going to keep seeking sorcery divination all these other things that he wants nothing to do with them
1: yeah, we see this picture of two different pathways. One pathway is taking the Lord and experiencing the Lord's goodness and provision. The other pathway is one of arrogance and enmity with God, which is going to result in shame.
0: And then we get a picture of just the full restoration of things, a mm. whole new age, a new heaven, new earth, um, where there won't be violence and weeping and despair. All that things will be gone. Uh, certainly, uh, Revelation will pick up on that same theme as well.
1: And as God promises this renewal and that all things will one day be restored, it kind of takes us back to Genesis 3 and the consequences of sin as well. Here we read about how there's going to be no more death and the chosen shall enjoy their work and there will no longer be enmity. And those all speak to the consequences that are laid out during the fall in Genesis 3.
0: Yeah. And in the past, uh, the, the tabernacle and the temple, uh, the, the ark was always kind of referred to in some ways as a footstool of God. But here um, in Isaiah, God, God speaks in this much more grandiose way that the earth is his footstool and basically like the heavens, the cosmos of selves are his his temple. And, and it's no longer just priests, like who can enter into this place? Who can be before, the, before God? It's, it's those who are humble and contrite, those who follow the word. Enough where he's he's sort of like, look, the, the sacrificial system, like if it doesn't actually lead you to humility and contriteness, like I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with it. Like that's what God was always after from his kingdom of priests his holy nation.
1: This has a really simple Messianic connection, but it's also a challenge to us. God looks to the humble and the contrite in spirit and those who tremble at his word. And our example of this is Christ, of course, but how does it play out in your own life? I just, I feel like being humble and contrite in spirit and trembling at his word is never something I will default to or even pursue without the help of the Holy Spirit. So I need to pray often that God will sanctify and grow those characteristics in me.
0: And then there's sort of the statement that, look, for, for new things to happen, like giving birth, the uh, pain is usually comes first, and so uh, that 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 shouldn't be unexpected here. But then we're given sort of the promise that that it will happen that that Jerusalem will give birth ultimately without going through these labor pains uh, to this new movement. In some ways,
1: we see a final reiteration of God's goodness over Jerusalem and a call to rejoice at what will be in that city and what will be among God's people.
0: And then sort of the final sort of future that the, the the people will be flourishing like grass and the wicked will perish. There's a new heaven, new earth drawn from people all over the earth, this global rep- restoration of all things. Uh, and there will be some sort of reminder uh, about those who have rebelled in the process as well.
1: Part of God's goodness is to judge the wicked. And so the invitation is to turn from our sinful ways and receive the redemption of God or... Alternately, we can anticipate a judgment where we are not clothed in Christ's righteousness, but our own sin.
0: So, final thoughts on all of Isaiah. I know. We've been
1: reading it for like a year, so it's kind of hard to get final thoughts on the entire book. But the overall theme um, almost seems to be a more concise story of this creation, fall, redemption, consummation uh, theme we follow throughout all of Scripture. So the first portion of Isaiah really emphasizes God's good calling on Isaiah, but the massive amounts of destruction and hurt and death that come as a result of sin and wickedness. And then we see Isaiah promising a future messianic redeemer and he casts vision for the day that all is going to be made new and right, which which is very similar to to revelation. So I I honestly don't know that I have a personal application at this time aside from asking God to continue to expand my understanding of his full character rather than just portions of God's character that I can make better sense of or am more comfortable with.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that first portion does exist, yeah, of of a sort of warning and that God's going to destroy their vineyard if they don't they don't change. Then we get all the woes in the second reading we did, It woes to the surrounding seas and and Israel themselves. Uh, that third reading really focused on the suffering servant, uh, the connection between Israel's suffering and deliverance, and sort of this unnamed servant who will play a role in the restoration. And uh, the one we just read—it's just heavily a message of hope and restoration. And I think it encapsulates a, a decent chunk of the narrative of the Old Testament. Of provides a, sort of a good framework too of of our lives around sin and the, the call to to turn and repent and and what happens if we don't, but what happens if when we do. And and not only that, but Jesus's work is a suffering servant to provide restoration and hope that, um, even in our, our stumblings and, and failures at times to repent, uh, there's still a greater work that happens in a future hope that is based upon God's graciousness and the, the fact that his ways aren't our ways. And so, um, Isaiah encapsulates so much and, and, um, but yeah, it's great. So, Revelation, uh, we're going to get through the seven churches and then the throne room scene. Um, as I said last week, there's so much context and text and all this kind of stuff. And um, there's really three parts, I think, in the Ephesian letter this the idea that uh, around them struggling with um, losing their first love, which, um, if, if you uh, are, are part of Resonate, I, I certainly preached on this recently, but uh, around, I would argue, their, their love for each other even more than losing maybe affection for Jesus. And then um, the Nicolaitans were a group that. Um, spoke a lot about, um, compromise and being willing to, to worship, uh, uh, Jesus and also be fine with, um, some of the idolatry of, of Greece. And so, um, the good thing that the Ephesians reject that. And then lastly, this whole tree of life idea, um, that they would cling to, uh, what really should be read as the cross of life. And so, um, it's, it's sort of this beautiful letter to a people who, um, had been faithful in the beginning are called to be faithful again, uh, reject some of the, continue to reject some of those syncretistic where you kind of blend different faiths uh, reject from that and remember where salvation really comes from.
1: We see the Ephesian church here being praised for their doctrinal purity and endurance, but being rebuked by their loss of love. And I think this is a good convicting reminder. They're doing all the right things, but they've lost the heart behind it. We are reminded over and over and over again that change comes from within and the love and the intimacy the church has with Christ must be cultivated and embraced as a practice so that we don't lose the heart behind our actions.
0: Yeah. And then we get to Smyrna. Uh, it's named for myrrh, which is a spice certainly used with burial uh, as well as um, a city of known as the city of resurrection they had been destroyed and then hundreds of years later rebuilt um, and And they were a very Roman town a lot of crowns distinguished uh, different classes um, they also uh, had a history of a, of a Jewish contingency within the town that rejected the, the Greek converts to Christianity and didn't allow them to worship together and so I think John uses all these elements in this letter and speaks of sort of the a greater resurrection not just of a city not just of those things but through Jesus and that um, they experience a lot of suffering they do experience a lot of persecution. And one of the most famous martyrdoms of Polycarp happens um, from his experience, uh, he was the Bishop of Smyrna um, and uh, at the hands of the, a collection of Jews and Romans who uh, decide to turn him in. Um, and ultimately, this crown of Jesus is sort of the, the final thing. It's not a Roman status. It is a crown that that only Jesus can give you. That is uh, about eternal life.
1: The church in Smyrna here is just being encouraged to remain faithful as they endure persecution don't lose that the faithful here are promised persecution this is so anti prosperity gospel and that the most faithful are being prepared to face the most difficulties and so we in the united states are not experiencing persecution per se but as you face difficulties don't think that it's because you're uh, you need to change something and god will lift that here we see the faithful suffering the most.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, in Pergamum, a city that had a lot of significant temples, including one to uh, a former Caesar and then also to Zeus, the, the very head of the pantheon of Greece. And so, um, and the altars themselves are always meant to re- represent thrones as well. And so, um, the idea that the throne of Satan uh, could be either of those, but it's also a city that was really into Dionysus and they would have annual festivals to, to this god and they would consume a ton of raw meat, uh, tremendous amounts of wine. Um, there was a lot of sex and abuse that would happen tied into that. Like the goal would be to be super indulgent and to throw up a lot. And that would be an odd goal, but that was their goal. And so when John makes reference to the throne of Satan and it could be any of those three, but then he certainly makes reference to Balaam and Balak and how the Jews in their past had um, given in to both food and sexual debauchery in the past. And and I think John, once again, is saying, look, we've been here before, and God has condemned us, and it has caused wreckage for us. So let's not do those same things again. And, and the people in Pergamum are, are likely kind of tying in some of this... Um, uh, pagan worship and maybe into their worship, and and John's um, pleading with them through this letter, saying, "Don't, don't do those things." And and not only that, but we get symbolism around the sword, which um, they were called. Um, the, the town was given the power of the sword to make rulings for Caesar, but ultimately, it's Jesus here who has the power of the sword. Um, and then there was also this um, medical building, the Asclepion, and um, as people got healed, they would write their names on the stones, and um, there's still to this day remnants of of these huge stones with pe- tons of people's names. On on them that experienced healing from that. And John's, I think, picking up on that. And at the end of this, talking about um, how um, healing ultimately comes through Jesus, not through this pagan temple. And and with reference to Exodus 28 too, where um, also the Jews would write their names of, of the sons and place those so others can see.
1: So, we see here that the believers of Pergamum remained faithful during persecution, but they also permitted false teaching in other areas. And it's a reminder to us that faithfulness in one area of our lives does not mean faithfulness in all areas. The invitation or the command here is to repent for their own good.
0: Uh, And then, Tyra, Tyra, it's a very blue collar city. Um, They're famous for a type of bronze that was made, a mirror type of bronze. Uh, But they had a large number of work guilds, labor guilds, um, which were. Work guilds um, would be considered almost like a, um, uh, 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 yeah, like guilds we would think of today, but almost like college fraternities and paganism all tied into that. They would have these huge feasts that were very paganistic and very debaucherous in, in practice. And so, um, but that the God of the city was the son of Zeus, which is the, uh, the only time we hear a son of God in this book uh, really actually is tied into this, or at least in these seven letters. Um, and there was also a Jewish prophetess in the city, which should sound, um, uh, like a pagan Jewish prophetess, she would work the oracle there, which should sound like it should make sense because it doesn't. Um, and, and so, uh, this idea of this Jezebel in the city is likely tied into this woman. Um, and John makes reference here to Son of God. Here, um, this town centered around the Son of Zeus. There's Daniel references to the bronze and the guild work, um, and and I would argue this Jezebel who. Um, was really the source of how Asher worship really got into Israel was uh, through Ahab and Jezebel and all these marriages that were arranged. And Jezebel was ultimately thrown down or her children were killed. And I think John's using that same imagery uh, to talk about these people who have um, likely, once again, synchronistically uh, given in or are being um, tempted uh, to... Um, perform both pagan practices and these Christian practices. And, and God's saying, no, don't do not do that. And God speaks, I'm going to rule with an iron scepter. Once again, it's a son of God, Psalm, that's from Psalm 2. And, and there's a lot of layers. to this. There's Solomon and Jeremiah and all these other things happening. But for the city that's participating in pagan oracles guild feasts, God's calling them to leave those things behind. Don't do those deeds at all.
1: So here we see this church is being praised for their growing love and faithfulness, but they are criticized for their lack of discernment and for continuing to allow false teaching into their church and into their lives. I just find it really interesting that they're praised for their deeds of service, but their personal practices are still under false teaching. Where are you in your own life or where am I working for social and public justice, but neglecting my personal life and tolerating sin?
0: Yep. And then Sardis, a city famous for uh, being a, a city of two mountains in some ways, one had their on it, and one had the necropolis, the, the place of death, uh, on it. And um, it's interesting that he even starts with uh, you, you seem like a people who are alive, but you're really dead, which is really like the picture of, of visually of this people. Um, and the city was destroyed by an earthquake. We'll deal with that as we go through the book of Revelations, where uh, the mountains uh, broke into thirds. Um, but uh, there's famous stories from their history, and one of those is that uh, twice in their history, uh, the city got ransacked. It was really they were up on a mountain and really hard and they thought of themselves as impenetrable, Uh, but they ended up getting ragsacked twice. And both those times were at night while everybody was sleeping and they got destroyed. So John picks up on this uh, to talk about, um, look, Jesus can be like that, where one day this thing's going to wrap up, and don't be asleep, don't be sleepers, be awake. And which we saw plenty in Jesus' teaching about too, that we would uh, be a people who are awake, who are ready, who are not um, lulled to sleep by this world. Um, and there's things like Obadiah is the only book to uh, talk about Sardis, and it, it was also a book where the central theme is you think you're secure and you think you're you're impenetrable, you think you're 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 Self-sufficient, but but you're not. Um, and then the most uh, last sort of kind of interesting piece is um, one of the one of the major celebrations in this town is uh, around this one myth, and and they would um, parade in white robes, and um, one of the sacrifices you can give to show total devotion is uh, actually castration. And if you got blood on your robe, it would be a, a picture of your devotion as well. Um, and so. Uh, John goes out of his way to go, I'm, I am glad you have not stained your robes. And and, um, and and so I wonder if John's picking up on that to be like, look, you haven't given in to, once again, the paganism of the city, the practices of the city. Uh, I'm glad you've stayed apart, but make sure you stay awake. Make sure you stay ready for the return of Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, here in Sardis, we see that there are a few who are faithful, but most of the believers are not displaying their faith in good works, which we know it's virtually impossible to connect to disconnect good works and faith. And this letter to me is almost the most alarming. They have a reputation of being alive, but they are dead. So where are we at risk of portraying one thing in our lives or riding some sort of wave of past faithfulness, but currently today neglecting our own faith and pursuit of God?
0: Yeah. And then the Church of Philadelphia, uh, once considered uh, the door to Asia Minor, but um John opens up saying, look, you're going to be a door, but you're going to be a door to God's global people. Um, they're kind of picking up from Isaiah there and, and that the, the God's coming soon. This this return um, in this text was also uh, something that the city experienced a lot because it experienced tons of earthquakes. Uh, Rome often helped rebuild, and then the sort of uh, coming soon, the parousia of, of the Caesar. So um, this idea that that Jesus would be returning is an important um, theme for them. Um, and, and the city had been renamed multiple times as well. And I think John uses, Isaiah 62 and these other kind of texts that talk about um, ultimately this new name, uh, the, the taking uh, the crown here, that you will be uh, this new people. Uh, and, and we get pillars from Second like Chronicles 3 and other things like that as well.
1: So the Christians in Philadelphia are praised for enduring in faith. They're praised for patient endurance, and they're encouraged to continue to hold fast to what they believe and know is true. And we're to do this, too, not only in extreme moments, but in the everyday decisions and practices we make. Our strength is from God and is found through prayer and his word.
0: Yep. Uh, And then Laodicea, uh, a city that sat near uh, a city like Heropolis, which is famous for its mineral hot Springs, these like white cliffs of hot springs that still are, are there to this day, and Colisée, which had a, a fresh, clean, natural spring water. But Laodicea, the waters would run down uh, and basically be useless. It would be too mineral rich to drink. Basically, it would taste terrible. You'd want to spit it out, and too lukewarm to be soothing or to be um, what hot springs are known for. And so, um, sometimes we, I've heard it taught like God wants you to be on fire for Him, or wants you to reject him. I don't know even if cold would be used for it in that, that text, but he doesn't want you to just be wishy-washy. And I would argue here, it's, it's really the question of, um, um, God be, thinking, are, are you useful for me? Because both hot and cold are useful for the people. Are, are you useful for what God desires to to use you for? The um, so city was known for creating weapons too. Uh, a lot of Roman soldiers uh, stationed here for a long period of time. Um, and, and you were required that if they came knocking on your door, it was Roman law, that you had to feed them and then send them on their way. Um, but Jesus is standing at the door to knock and, and then to sit and to fellowship and, to, and to, to be a part of your life. A very different, and then a Roman practice, who they would have just... Take and take and take and take and take and move on. Jesus stays to dine, to fellowship with us. So say known for solves, for blindness, black wool, all these sort of things are in the te- are in um, their history. And then Isaiah 55, 65, Proverbs 3, Hosea 12, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, all these things are quoted uh, within John writing through this section uh, to really teach that, that they would not be apathetic, but actually learn from, from their history and learn from the discipline of the Lord, that he loves you as a child, but there's discipline in the midst of it.
1: Yeah, the the church in Laodicea was likely very wealthy and... They were also criticized for their spiritual immaturity that came because of their wealth. Their wealth made them apathetic because all of their needs were met. They didn't need God. And so they are encouraged to be refined in the fire so that they will focus on what is true and eternal and heavenly riches rather than earthly riches. And so this is a, a solemn and a somber warning to us who are in a similar position of wealth and comfort. It's very easy to be spiritually immature because we are not dependent on God to meet our needs.
0: And then Chapter Four is a, a famous throne room of heaven kind of scene, and certainly uh, John is is picking up on themes from uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah and some of those moments where uh, uh, we are entered into the throne room of God. But uh, for here, there's there's all sorts of pieces of symbols. Um, if you had a Roman advent, which would be the arrival of of. Of the Caesar, um, and and you're in Ephesus, and and he. Let's say uh, you just built the d- gymnasium to Domitian, and he's entering through this gate on the outside coast of town. as coming in, he would be preceded by twenty four priests representing the twenty four legalized religions of Rome. Uh, he would arrive with, and they would have Romes and golden crowns. Um, there would be songs. They would bring in all these statues and symbols to establish all over town. This town dedicated now as the capital, um, and so uh, the symbols that we know are tied to Domitian or a lion and an ox. Uh, and then not only that, but he had all sorts of statues of himself made. Um, he had, um, and then the eagle was always a representative of Rome. And so um, you have all of these images throughout this text. And not only that, but they would sing lyrics like, hail to Caesar almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so viewed in that cultural context, I, I think John is doing something really brilliant um, for his people to 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 know and to see. Basically like, look, I've, I've, I've seen into the throne room or I've seen into... Um, who is on the throne and and it wasn't it wasn't Domitian on the throne. It was Jesus on the throne. And actually, um, all, all the things in, in his arrival uh, is going to be happening, and all the things that are even represent Rome are at his footstool. It is not Rome that's in power. It's Jesus that is really in power. And it's not the pomp and circumstance of this powerful ruler who is persecuting you. And I know times are hard, but, but who is the true king in this moment is really Jesus. It's very subversion. It's like, I've seen the throne of God, and Domitian's not on it. And so um, it's a beautiful sort of pastoral moment, I think, for John to these people to say, yes, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, these symbols of all this power and stuff like that, but I've seen behind it. And who's really there is Jesus.
1: What an encouragement to John in exile and to the persecuted churches that they can remember back to the other prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah who had similar visions. We see God show up in his glory and power and might when his people are suffering. And so for us, when it feels like our ha- our hate faith is hanging by a thread or ha- are on the brink and that we could lose it all, we are reminded that God rules all and God rules forever.
0: Yep. And Psalm uh, 18.
1: We see David's prayer of final triumph when he overcame all of his enemies and saw his first words. David's first words were, I love you, O Lord, my strength. It's so good.
0: Yeah, certainly some metaphors of Israel's history throughout this text, but this understanding of God as deliverer, and he was going to use power and miraculous means to, to sometimes accomplish his job or role. Psalm 119.
1: We see a theme of fullness in this section, the whole heart crying out to God all time, morning and evening in prayer. The sum of your words is true truth. God is all.
0: Yeah. And I always appreciate some of the psalmists sort of calling God to sort of honor his own promises. And uh, it happens certainly here. It's almost like Elijah, like, God, you've you've said you would deliver your your people from their enemies. And I'm asking you to do that right now. So next Mm -hmm. week.
1: So in the Old Testament, most of you know that God's name isn't actually mentioned in the book of Esther. So how do you see him at work, even when his acts aren't specifically referenced? Look for his sovereignty and his promises there. And in the New Testament, just spend some time in the prayers and worship of God here. The imagery is rich, and these are passages of Scripture that are to transform us as we meditate on it. So don't just blow past it, but really soak in the truth of, of the honor and the worthiness due to God.
0: Yeah, and as you read through Esther, um, think about how this book fits into the Old Testament. Like, why is it included? What might uh, it be there to teach God's people, so them and us, uh, about who God is and how we are really called to operate uh, in the world? And then in the New Testament, um, I'll attach a layout of the organization of um, Greco-Roman Olympic Games and sort of the the format, because uh, see if you can catch what John may be doing, maybe in structuring and comparing and contrasting um, his arguments that he is building about who Jesus is even compared to this idea of, of, of the Olympics. And so, um, yeah, that's it. Thanks y'all.
1: Thank you.